welcome to this sixth installment of our Science and Life webinar series on rare diseases. I'm Sean Sanders, and it is once again my pleasure to moderate today's discussion. In our nine-part series running through the remainder of 2021, we are looking at some of the most critical issues in the arena of rare diseases. You can find previous webinars in this series at webinar.sciencemag.org, and a recording of this and future webinars will also be posted there. We have already covered quite a broad range of topics related to rare diseases, including the challenges of diagnosing and detecting rare diseases, neonatal testing, and the application of artificial intelligence in rare disease detection, diagnosis, and research. In today's discussion, we're going to examine the role that primary care doctors and frontline medical facilities play in detecting and treating rare diseases. Finally, thank you to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. We have a wonderful international panel of speakers on the line today, and I'm excited to have them introduce themselves to you now. So welcome one and all, thank you for being here, and thank you for all of the work that you are doing in the rare diseases space. Uh, I'm going to ask Dr. Wang Riga to start us off, and Durhain is actually part of our first webinar in this series back in March. So uh, thank you for coming back and please go ahead and introduce yourself. Well, it was a great experience. So thank you very much for inviting me back. I am Durham Wong Rieger. I am president and CEO of the Canadian Organization for Rare Disorders, which is a, a national alliance of rare disease groups and patients. I also sit as chair of Rare Diseases International, which is our global alliance of rare disease groups and international disease groups, and have also am also now president of the Asia Pacific Alliance of Rare Diseases Organizations, which includes about 19 organizations across the Asia Pacific uh, area, which um, it's been a very interesting experience because there's such a diversity, of course, in, in that region. So very happy to be here. Wonderful. Thank you, Derhan. Uh, I'm going to turn to Dr. Malherbe next, uh, who joins us from my home country of South Africa. So uh, welcome, Helen. Thank you, Sean. Um, I'm Helen Malherbe. Um, I am currently a director at Rare Diseases South Africa, which is a registered nonprofit organization and public benefit organization here in South Africa. And we're really focusing on improving the quality of life for all of those affected by rare diseases and congenital disorders. Um, I'm a director, but I'm also heading up epidemiology and research at Rare Diseases South Africa. And then I have a foot in the academic world as well, being a postdoctoral researcher. Um, I'm currently in between um, academic institutions, but I am starting um, again in September at a new um, organization that will be focusing on the health economics of rare diseases and congenital disorders in South Africa. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Helen. Uh, let's have Dr. Leon next. Uh, Abby, over to you. Thank you, Sean. I am an assistant professor at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. I um, am a clinical geneticist, and I see patients with rare disorders um, for over 10 years. Thank you so much, Abby. And uh, finally, I'm very pleased to welcome uh, Dr. Dong Dong, who is based in Hong Kong. So welcome, Dong. Thank you, Shang. Thank you for inviting me to this wonderful event. Uh, I'm Dong Dong. I'm a research assistant professor from the Jockey Club School of Public Health and Primary Care at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And I started to study uh, the social economic impacts of rare diseases on patients and the 
their families, mainly in China in 2014. And I used both qualitative survey, quantitative survey methods and qualitative ethnographic methods to do my research. So um, the research approach that, that I'm, I've been taking is basically called community-based participatory approach, which allowed me to focus on the patient's real life experiences and impact of disease on their everyday life. Um, so that is why I also work very closely with the national patients organizations in China, including the China Alliance for Rare Diseases, uh, the Illness Challenge Foundation, and the Beijing Ailey Myasthenia Gravis Care Center. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dong. So I, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. You all bring, bring a fantastic wealth of experience <laughs> uh, from many different parts of the world. So I, I wanted to start out by um, sort of asking the broad questions about the problem, uh, the problem of rare diseases and of detecting and, and uh, diagnosing rare diseases. Um, I found a, a quote that I'm sure you've all heard uh, that's attributed to Dr. Theodore Woodward of the University of Maryland, where he said, uh, when you hear hoofbeats, don't expect to see a zebra. And I believe the point he was making is when you're diagnosing a patient, look for the obvious. But obviously, when we're talking about rare diseases, that's not the case. In, in fact, it's the opposite. So, so Durhan, maybe I can come to you and just ask, when, when it comes to diagnosing rare diseases, um, currently, how long does it take to receive a diagnosis? Obviously, the time to a diagnosis really depends on where you are, right? And obviously, it depends on the type of disease that you've got. So we're doing a much better job in terms of diagnosing what we might call common rare diseases. These are the rare diseases which do have a very clear, um, a, not only just a definition, but you they can be much more easily diagnosed. Um, they can either be diagnosed by tests, by di diagnosed by symptoms, but we still say somewhere around, I mean, we did research just recently in Canada. Again, it takes five to seven years for somebody when we ask people how long did it take you to get a diagnosis? And that's kind of what the international experience is. The sad part about it is that most of these families also say we get one to 14 misdiagnoses mm -hmm. before we get the right diagnosis. So that's a huge issue. Obviously, with some of the breakthroughs in terms of newborn screening, in terms of genome sequencing, we can expect that we will be able to do much better job in terms of diagnosis. But for the most part, um, and certainly around the world, we would have to say the challenge in getting a diagnosis is still very, very difficult. And certainly because there's such a large number, right, of rare diseases. It isn't as if you can become an expert in rare diseases. There are still, as we say, six to 7,000 of them. So it is still very, very difficult. 80% are genetic, so we're going to get closer to being able to do those kind of diagnoses. But the access to that kind of diagnostic testing is, is obviously not widely available. Mm -hmm. And so for families, of course, it's for most of them they're still going through that long period of time of not knowing and not getting an answer. And really, as we say, the despair of having a misdiagnosis. Mm -hmm. So, so Dong, yeah, I, I want to, to share something. Yeah. 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 Sorry. I, I, go ahead. I, I actually wanted to come to you to get your perspective since you, you do, t you know, a lot of your research is talking to families about yeah. the impact. So what, what is the impact of such a, a long, long time to diagnosis? 
Yeah, I, I want to um, agree with uh, Durham on her observation in Canadian population, like the, the patients. Like in China, we did uh, several different national level surveys among rare disease patients in the past. So like in 2018, when we surveyed all the patients impacted by rare disease, we didn't select, select specific diseases. So we had almost like more than 100 different types of diseases. And we asked how long does it take for them to get a definitive diagnosis? So on average, like 85, 58% uh, of the patients actually can get a diagnosis in the same year when you start to, to see the doctors, which is very impressive. We didn't expect to see these results. And if you do not take this part of patients into account, actually the average time of this diagnostic odyssey is about 5.3 years. However, one year later, we have this national, the first national list of rare diseases in China. So now we have 121 rare diseases defined by the government as rare in China. So we surveyed 34 uh, diseases from this whole 121 um, diseases. Then surprisingly, nearly 80% of them can get a def definitive diagnosis within the same year. And without taking this group of people into account, the average time uh, for you to get a diagnosis is 4.26 years. So it's shorter. So the common rare diseases actually are not that difficult to be diagnosed. The most difficult part is the uncommon ones. Even among people with rare diseases, there is the common and non-common diseases. It's a rare or extremely rare disease that, that makes a huge difference. And I believe lots of the common rare diseases, they get lots of public attention, like ALS, because of the ice bucket challenge, like lots of people know about the disease. So even before the ice bucket challenge, maybe lots of people have never heard about it, or even the doctors never seen any patients with that. But just due to one global social movement or this viral event on the internet, so everybody gets to know it. So this is the publicly well-known rare diseases, actually the diagnostic odyssey is not that difficult. But what concerns us the most is for those who actually not being detected, not being diagnosed, who can never find a diagnosis in their entire life. Actually, we cannot survey them. They are not defined as rare disease patients in any way. They are not included in any of the database. They are not included in any surveys, in any research database. So where are they, who they are? These are the questions that we cannot have answers. And is there any other different ways for us to find them? Like to discover the zebra among a group of horses. But if we do not even have a definition on zebra, then how can we find it? So that's the, the thing, the question that concerns me or the other patients' organizations most. Mm -hmm. yeah. right, so, so maybe, uh, Helen, I can come to you with, with that question. Do, do you see the same thing in, in South Africa and maybe brought more broadly in Africa? Definitely. And I think um, just listening to my colleagues here, um, Dong and Dahan, and I, I'm, I'm both jealous, um, envious, and um, encouraged just to hear the 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 shortened diagnostic odyssey um the situation in south africa is the same but on a scale of magnitude we're in we're far behind in terms of even being able to diagnose obvious congenital disorders for example down syndrome which is diagnosable 
within a couple of days elsewhere. Mm. There was um, a recent recent research study in KwaZulu-Natal, one of our provinces, where it can take over a year to get a diagnosis. Um, and part of that is due to infrastructure challenges, lack of um, trained, appropriately trained um, healthcare professionals, but also with other challenges in diagnosis um, with the clinical features and so on. But when it's all added together, we're, we're struggling to even identify the horses, let alone the zebras. <laughs> so, Abi, let me let me come to you for for some comments on this. So, you know, obviously the, there's clear challenges, especially in in the low and middle income countries. And uh, you're in the U.S. We we have some advantages here. But um, what role do you see the primary care physicians playing in this, both in in uh, first world countries like the U.S. and and throughout the, the rest of the world as well? Uh, so. Primary care doctors have a very key role on identifying um, patients that can potentially have a genetic disorder. Um, in the U.S., we have uh, many patients referred to us just because there is some delays in the development, not necessarily because the child looks different. Um, so we have a lot of patients that are pretty healthy, pretty, um, you know, growing well, and they just have the diagnosis of autism, for example. And we um, try to do our best to give as much as testing possible, but there's, of course, the challenges of insurance coverage and resources that the, the, the families have. Um, we can, of course, diagnose clinically many of the common syndromes. Um, many pediatricians um, follow patients with Down syndrome and not necessarily need a geneticist um, to take care of these patients. Um, there are clinical guideline, guidelines that the American Academy of Pediatrics um, have you know, reported uh, many years ago. And, uh, is very well known by the pediatricians in um, this country, in in other countries as well, and is being followed. Um, but of course, <clears throat> there's lack of of, of training in, in other regions or even in our centers. Sometimes we see patients that haven't been picked up by by the you know pediatrician. Um, but you know, it, it's not as common as. Um, in other areas. Uh, you know, Sean, if I can jump in, because mm -hmm. I think uh, what Helen was saying and what AB is referring to as well, and your question around what about the role of the primary care and the pediatrician, I think it's huge, right? Because that is where parents go. That is where patients go. And But unfortunately, as we say, you know, when you're looking for a zebra in a field of forces, especially if you're short of time, and you don't have quick diagnostics. That is our goal. I belong to a number of consortiums. One is the you know the um, Undiagnosed Diseases International, which is a huge international network uh, really focused on the undiagnosed. And one of the most important groups out of that is actually the Black Swan Foundation, which uh, you know again is a network of people without diagnosis, which is sort of interesting, you know, mm -hmm. because their only commonality is they don't have a diagnosis. I think the other thing I'm part of is, for instance, the Global Commission on uh, Ending the Diagnostic Odyssey. And I know that Children's Hospital is playing a huge role in terms of trying to do that kind of networking. So part of it, I think, is being able to not train 
pediatricians and general practitioners to recognize 6,000 rare diseases. That, of course, is impossible. And in many cases, as they say, they will never see a specific rare disease, even some of the more common rare diseases. But what we can do is give them better tools so they know, in fact, where to go if, in fact, they do have a rare disease. And, you know, signs and symptoms. And then, then they can actually have a portal that they can go to and look that up. And then they can refer to a specialist, including places like Children's Hospital, Rabies Hospital, and you know, in San Diego, these are centers. So we need to do a better job of giving these frontline, you know, healthcare professionals the tools so that they can actually recognize that there may be. But I'm going to take a big step back, and I don't know, Dong, if you got this in your research, but we certainly get it. It's the frustration of families and parents who try to tell their doctor that mm. my child actually has something wrong. And yes, you're giving me a diagnosis and you're giving me a horse diagnosis, but it's not working. And, you know, I'm doing all this stuff and it ain't working. And so we need to also train the healthcare professionals and the pediatricians to listen to the families. But we also need to help the families be able to better document what it is they're coming in with. So I think it's working on both sides of that. And I'm really excited by some of these initiatives that are taking place that are Never mind the, the really fancy genomic sequencing, which will do a great deal for us, but getting back to where it starts. Parents, patients, better understanding, better articulating. And yes, what I really want from the family physicians and the pediatricians is to listen, to pay attention. And then we need to have places like ABS that says, okay, we're not getting there. Can you help us? Do we have a referral? Or the Undiagnosed Disease Network that says, here are some guidelines. If you're seeing some of this stuff, then maybe you can refer to us. So we do need to do a better job ourselves of being able to set up this network so it is much better for that frontline physician, that pediatrician who's right there at the crosshairs, right, to be able to do their job. But it means all the other parts need to work as well. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's fantastic, Darren. You, you've you've moved us nicely, segued us into into the next part of the topic, which I want to talk about, which is finding a solution. And I I think you've touched on some really critical sort of issues there that we're going to definitely dig into. But maybe I'll, I'll turn to Dong and just uh, see if you have any comments and thoughts, particularly from uh, your perspective in Asia. Yeah, I I I, I think Durham was. Um touching on some very important topics here, but also these topics are controversial in a sense. When I talk with like, I, I give you some example. A few years ago, I was attending a conference in China about rare diseases. So one of the presenters was talking about neonatal screening panels like you can do, like you can screen like 30 or even 40 um, genetic diseases all at once. Like, and these are provided for free by the government. So the, the presenter was trying to show off these achievements. Like now we can detect all these genetic disorders at once, right? It's efficient and it's a good news for the parents. However, surprisingly, there was a very famous geneticist in China. He stood up and he said very critically against it. He said, if you do not have any countermeasures, if you do not have a very good social support system, how can you tell the parents that their newborns are having these genetic disorders? Can you expect whether these parents are going to do with the newborn? You don't have a very close bonding with a newborn. And it's easy for some of the parents, especially they are living in poverty, they do know how to deal with the issues and there's no social support, no social welfare system to help these parents to raise child with this disease. 
the easy decision is to abandon the child. Mm. So without having any ethical or social considerations in before taking this neonatal screening test, there's no test to be done. Mm. I think when this geneticist was saying that, I was hugely shocked, but was enlightened by his insights, his perspective, simply because when we were thinking about diagnosis, we were thinking that diagnosis is good for all the parents, for all the patients, for all the families. However, we do not consider enough about the consequences brought up by this diagnosis. Are we ready? Are we fully prepared to embrace this disease? Do we have enough solutions after we get a diagnosis, can we find treatment for them? If there's no medical treatment, do we have re rehabilitation? Do we have other ways to help this family and this patient? Mm -hmm. When I was doing ethnographic studies in China, I went to the clinics and tried to observe the doctors and patients talking about their screening test results. You can see like everybody's reaction are so different. Some of the families, they got excited when they have a results, but some of the family, they just broke on the site when they know the results. They don't know how to deal with it. You can see, you can definitely can tell some of the couples are going to get divorced right after it. Because if you are carrying a, a bad gene, I do not want you to have my child because this is going to be carried in my family. Mm. So are we actually ready for getting a diagnosis? Like mm. this is something that's a dilemma that I have no answers for that. But perhaps in the future, with better social care, with better healthcare system, with better social support system, we can have answers for that. Yeah. Now, this is, this is a, a very interesting topic and it's, it's come up in previous webinars and clearly there's some controversy there. So I know there's a couple of other panelists who are itching to <laughs> talk. So Helen, I'll come to you and then Durhan, I, I think you wanted to say something too. Yeah, thanks, Sean. And Dong, a lot of very good points in there that I agree with. But at the same time, the the um, power of having a diagnosis, even if there is no treatment available, or even if there is treatment available, but it's inaccessible in the context, it is so powerful. Um, I mean, the family is under immense stress um, when you have a child with a rare disease. And just you know, knowing one thing, at least what it is, enables you then to make informed choices about having other children. Is it a condition that could affect other other children that you have? What is the prognosis? What is the, what is the treatment? What can you do practically? Because I think the most important thing about having a child with a rare disease or a loved one with a rare disease or yourself is just not being in control and not being able to change it. At least if you know something, you can actually, um, you know, come to terms with it. Um, and many, um, many people with rare um, rare diseases or children with rare diseases, we we don't celebrate, we remember those diagnosis days, um, which are important um, dates on our calendar. And I think just a couple of other interesting points that have been raised here. I mean, we're in a situation here in South Africa, we don't have access to newborn screening. It is not, av it's available for a fragmented or a few in the, of the population that can access um, private healthcare, which is only about 15, 16% of the population. Um, and then even things like um, a non-invasive prenatal testing, um, which is a screening that you can do for a lot of things like Down syndrome and so on, that's not available here at all. Um, and so many of what is um, run of the mill or standard practice in other countries, we don't even have available here yet. Um, so the technology is moving along, but we're still where we are now. And I think the other important issue, and this may also be an issue in China, Dong, 
um, is the whole the myths and the um, traditional beliefs in society mm -hmm. and the stigma that is associated with patients with rare diseases. So whether they have a diagnosis or not, um, I can understand, you know, in, in, in my context as well, where babies do get abandoned. And in many cases, in many of our communities, they're hidden. The children are hidden. Um, and they're only brought out in the middle of the night for treatment. So it's a, it's a, there's a lot of factors in this whole um, topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'll just come back in. Thanks, Sean. Um, just to say, I have two children, both born with rare diseases. Uh, my daughter never got a diagnosis, has never gotten diagnosed. She's in her 30s now. And she had, you know, first couple of years were extremely challenging because we didn't know what she had. She had a lot of symptomology. We didn't know if it's going to get better, if it's going to get worse. Um, you know, but you know, you do what you can, right? And you do all the rehab stuff. We, we're lucky. We live in Canada. We have excellent health care. So we had lots of resources. But of course, and I think today, if we were to go in, we could probably do a genome sequencing and probably identify what she might have. Um, but that's up to her. She's, you know, an adult now, so she can decide what she wants to do. My son was born with a, a rare heart condition, immediate diagnosis, knew exactly what it was. He had prognosis. He had excellent milestone care from, you know, up until he was 18, where our pediatric system ends and the adult system becomes a mess, but that's a different story altogether. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so it is, it's a huge difference between having a diagnosis mm -hmm. or not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, and, and sometimes you do get a diagnosis and it doesn't give you a prognosis, right? It doesn't tell mm -hmm. you anything, but it does, as Helen says, it might tell you in terms of what the future might be, et cetera. So, you know, not having it. But I will say also, you know, one, it supports the other, right? I mean, you look at, um, Taiwan, for instance, you know, their rare disease community is huge. Hong Kong, the rare disease community is huge. And part of it is having that support network. But that support network doesn't come if you don't have a diagnosis. If parents don't get a diagnosis, they don't speak. The saddest thing, I think, and I hear Helen saying this, and it kind of breaks your heart, and I'm sure, Abby, you know, you can appreciate it, it you know, in the U.S., where newborn screening is mandated. You have communities that are doing 60 newborn, you know, screenings, wow. you know, tests. In Canada, we don't have a standard, but we have, you know, you know, fairly good. Some of these diseases, as we well know, if you take preventive action at birth, at beginning, mm -hmm. you can actually avoid a lifetime of actual symptoms or even early death, right? So those things, I remember having a conference, you know, in Asia Pacific and one of the um, geneticists, if you don't mind, I'll do very, two very quick stories. One of the geneticists was asked the question, I think she was in Indonesia or Thailand, I can't remember where, where they were introducing newborn screening. And they asked her, how do you decide, you know, as a hospital, as a government, which diseases you should test for? Because there's limited resources. And she said, dead easy. We test for those diseases that we can do something about. So it's kind of your question, Dong. It is the case. And part of it is because the resources, but the more we can test for it, the more we can stimulate getting something done about it. So I think that's a really important thing. But newborn screening is something that it should just be a standard. Good God, Helen, we need to have an international summit on newborn screening. These things are dead cheap for the most part. As you said, we can do panels that can do 25, 50, 60 diseases at once, mm. you know, so it is, you know, it's a blood spot, right? And um, I remember hearing a story from the geneticist in the Philippines, different from your geneticist, Don, who has made it her mission to do newborn screening for her patients. And she was telling the story, you know, it was the middle of a monsoon and they had families that were in, she says, you know, we have hundreds of islands. 
and what some of the farther islands. And what we do is we collect these newborn, these blood smears, right? And when we bundle them together and we deliver them. And I had a bundle that was coming. I have a monsoon and I am desperate because I got to get these tests to get, you know, these results, right? To get them tested. They got the Navy, they got fire departments, they got police to hand the bundle from island to island. They would come and meet the damn ship and they would bring that in. And she says, we got the test and we got the results. That's how important it is for us to get those newborn screenings. So I think we need to, as a global community, really, really go back to, you know, never mind all the fancy stuff yet, right? Let's do what we can do and newborn screening. You know, Helen, it, it's just a must. We've got to get this as yeah, a I I agree. I agree completely, Dahan. But our issue is that we have so many competing health challenges. I mean, we've got ongoing infectious diseases. We've got malaria. We've got, um, obviously, South Africa is one of the hardest hit countries in terms of HIV. Um, and along with that comes TB. And so they get the lion's share of the resources. And yeah. in many cases, the inherited, uh, sorry, the um, infectious diseases are more easy to diagnose. And obviously, right. in those cases, if there is a comorbidity where you've got someone that has an infectious disease and a rare disease, often the rare disease will get missed and the, only the infectious disease will get diagnosed. Or we have a lot of cases where there's misdiagnosis um, and in, in cases where it's um, life threatening, it never gets recorded. And, and it just it's a negative cycle because mm -hmm. we, we need to create and demonstrate that the case we have to have the evidence to show that rare diseases and congenital disorders are a problem so that can inform our policymakers so we can get that political commitment and allocate the funding. But we're fighting, we're, we're competing with so many other um, health priorities. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important to educate not only the providers, but also the general population mm -hmm. in the US, even though it's something, uh, like you said, uh, standard of care to do the newborn screening. There are families that don't want to get the newborn screening because they think that you can clone their baby with a blood spot. Mm -hmm. In this country, there's still some, you know, skepticism about doing any type of testing um, that involves, you know, blood or even DNA sometimes just because you want to screen a baby. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, the training for, for primary care providers is very key, again, just because many babies or patients that, for example, you are treating for an infection, you give all the, 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 the standard therapy, but the baby doesn't get better. It's mm. maybe a metabolic disorder. Um, mm. But again, the challenges of how expensive is the treatment or how if, if you know, the efficacy of the treatment. You know, the, the, the private companies that, um, push uh, countries to screen for conditions where treatment is so expensive and it's not that, you know, um, uh, efficacious to, to improve quality of life too. Uh, like the lysosomal storage disorder, certain ones, um, you know, in countries like in Brazil where um, sometimes the, the availability uh, for treatment is, is, is not possible. Um, but I, I think to, to give a diagnosis, uh, regardless of, of the resources available, uh, will be ideal. But of course, I think um, the education should be first, not only for the primary care, especially for the primary care and, and the population. I think it will be the most important thing before 
expanding all type of DNA testing mm-hmm. um, because there's a, a lot of what Don said, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, skepticism and, and misconception about uh, what we can do mm-hmm. with these results. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to add a little bit to that because when Helen and the Durham were talking about like we definitely should get a diagnosis. Of course, this is good, but we have some assumption here. We assume that the healthcare resources are equitable. Like everybody can get equal access to all these healthcare resources, but it's not. It's not just at a global level within the country or even within one city, right? So if one parent, one parent, one family get a diagnosis on the baby, and if the baby living in a wealthy family, so definitely he can or she can get enough support. And even if she lives in Canada or in other countries who have very good healthcare system, and it's all free, mostly free, so the family can get support. But like in China, it's a big country. We also have lots of issues. Rare disease is definitely not on the top of the list of the healthcare issues that we want to deal with. So when in China, actually, there's lots of discussions on whether we should use the national health care insurance to cover the treatment and diagnosis cost from the rare disease patients. There's lots of against from the public, from the experts. They are saying that we have so many common diseases like cancer, like chronic disease we need to deal with. If it's based on an equalized basis, Everybody just can share one slice from this big pie, this big healthcare insurance system. And for rare disease patients, lots of the treatment expensive, are lifelong, right? And the effectiveness cannot be measured by using the traditional economic ways to do it. So it's not cost effective. So that is why you should not take the same slice of the pie or even bigger size mm-hmm. of the pie from the national healthcare system. So that means Nobody actually trying to support rare disease patients. They are not doing anything based on the health equity, the concept of health equity. Mm -hmm. They are doing everything based on the concept of health equalization. But we are Mm -hmm. trying to propose that people have different needs. And for rare disease patients, if they want to raise their quality of life, if they want to have a good treatment, they are going to have all these expensive treatments. And they are going to take a bigger pie from this national healthcare insurance. Mm-hmm. If you cannot allow people to do that, then how can we talk about give everybody a diagnosis then give everybody the treatment? There's no available resources. Simply, I mean, I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. I mean, we have those same arguments. I mean, I think we all see that, right? If we use some kind of a, you know, everybody gets the same thing, but everybody doesn't have the same needs. So everybody shouldn't get the same thing. I mean, if we use that as an analogy, fine, we'll get anybody who has a handicap, you know, just let them, you know, kind of sit at home and do nothing. We would not treat the blind. We would not do anything that would actually be an advancement for anybody that requires more than the most common kind of a, you know, of a support. But we also know that we're doing huge advances in terms of understanding and research. And that's not going to happen unless we actually invest. I see the rare diseases and, and many other diseases as well. It's an investment. You know, what can we do here? We're investing in, you know, the patient, we're investing in the family, we're investing in research, we're investing in new treatments. Because if we don't do it, then we're always going to be stuck in the same spot, you know, and we're not going to be able to advance. I mean, in China, 
quite frankly, has, as you know, a really vibrant rare disease community and is doing one of some of the best work in terms of genomics and in terms of some of the best works. I mean, if we go to the very far end of it and we're looking at gene therapies, right? I mean, we have now advanced to the point where we can actually cure some of these diseases. And that will actually be, you know, a huge impact. Now, we're not going to get very much yet. It's still in early stages. But, you know, it's a little bit like space exploration. Should we go into space when there's so many other needs? Somebody asked Jeff Bezos that. He says, we cannot not do these. These are things we invest in because there's a future here. And what we're going to learn from the diagnosis and genome sequencing and gene therapy is going to help us all. At some point, we're going to come back. And quite frankly, we're going to cure cancer and we're going to cure some of these other genetic diseases using the, some of the what we've learned from rare diseases. So mm -hmm. I don't think one can just say, OK, is there an equal solution? And I know you're not saying that, Dong. <laughs> you know, I know you're not saying, OK, you know, never mind. You're too expensive. You have to just go and shrivel away. I know you're not saying that. But I think that's what we need to kind of redefine, you know, the, uh, the situation here. It's an investment. Mm -hmm. So so let me ask just related to this, how do we empower patients and their families to advocate, to advocate to the government, to, the, to their local uh, government, to their doctors. Uh, you know, what are some of the pathways? Uh, Amy, maybe, maybe I can ask you first um, and then others can jump in. Yeah, so the, the families, the parents especially, are um, very driven many times to promote research uh, in rare disorders. Uh, in, in my center, we see families where they want to um, not only create support groups, but also um, promote, uh, you know, a research that will uh, deal with uh, potential therapies for rare disorders. And um, there have been uh, more and more groups where um, they have been able to create animal models just through funding uh, with uh, social media and being able to uh, get a better understanding of the pathways that are affected with um, these mutations or changes in the DNA that uh, cause the disorders. Um, and so the, the genetic testing many times is available to many of the families that we see in this center and we are almost uh, every few months getting new, you know, diagnosis of, of very, very rare disorders um, where only a couple of patients have been reported and the parents are already looking for, you know, more, more answers. And so there is a national organization of rare disorders uh, in, in this country that um, is trying to help these families for them to own their own data so they can share this information to several entities um, instead of, for example, a pharmaceutical using uh, this data for profit only and not able to share or not wanting to share this data to, to other potential you know, companies that can um, invest uh, for research and treatment. Um, and I think that's very key because we already have problems um, with other no-so-rare disorders that have treatments, current treatments. Um, for example, lysosomal disorders where um, different companies 
own data of um, different diseases that belong to the same sort of like pathway and they don't share that information and they they have this uh, humongous you know data that yes they they will publish some of it but not all um, and it will delay a potential treatment for the future uh, that will benefit these families. So um, something I wanted to, to touch on in, the, in the, sort of the last quarter of this webinar um, is sort of looking to the future. So where do we go from here? And, and Durhain, um earlier raised a number of um, important uh, pathways, I think, that we could follow. Um, the, so the first question I had, and um, Durhain, maybe I'll come to you um, to answer this one, is what are some of the unique advantages that a a general practitioner or, or uh, a primary care physician or family physician has in diagnosing a rare condition? And also, what are some of the unique challenges that they might face in low and, and middle income countries, uh, you know, that, that where they maybe don't have the resources to do the testing that they'd like to do? Yeah, and I am very sensitive to what Don said, you know, and that is, you know, we test and we identify a disease, but do we have the resources? Do we have the supports to actually, where can we send this family? Um, and, um, you know, and I think this is true in many, many countries, right? Um, you know, the family physician, the general practitioner is in fact that, that focal point. So, you know, we've got to do a better job of empowering them to be able to, I mean, Somebody said to me, and I'm not a clinician, so I can't answer whether it's true or not, you know, but 90% of the time, you know, he says, we can identify these disease by symptoms. If I know enough about symptoms, I can actually, I don't need to go to the fancy stuff yet. You know, so that's actually very interesting. But of course the challenge is, you know, can we really stuff, you know, 6,000 diseases into a GP and say, okay, you might come across one of these. So you're gonna spin the Rolodex and it's gonna come up. So obviously in the age of, you know, internets and digital and AI, we are now developing some of these very amazing portals where in fact, I mean, we've had them for a while but they're just getting better and better, right? Where you can actually enter symptoms. And it begins to guess for you what the condition might be. And then you get to a point where it says, okay, we think it's this, this, and this. And then you can begin to also do a little bit of your own research and then be able to then make the referral. But that also presumes that you've got, you know, a physician who just not only cares, but has the time and the resources to do that. Not everybody's in a position where they can say, okay, you know, I've got hundreds of patients and I'm going to take the time. It, it requires to actually diagnose a rare disease patients. And it's easy, you know, and it's easy for the families to get frustrated and say, you're not hearing me, you're not listening to me, you're not following up on me, you know, and the physician, poor physician is beleaguered because they've got tons of other, you know, patients, you know, that they could probably easily treat within that same period of time. So it's also getting people the right tools, so they can do it easier. I think we need more centers like the Children's Hospital where become referral sites and where they're better resourced to actually take these referrals and they can be the specialists in it. And we have a new thing that we're trying to talk about is how do we train, you know, a network of maybe GPs and pediatricians to become rare disease specialists. The same as we have cancer specialists in the GP community. We have them especially in, in, well, in Canada. We think about people who live in northern communities where they don't have access to centers and specialists. You know, can we train you up to actually become somewhat of a specialist? And then the way it works is that we link you electronically to a major center where you can get the support. Here's what I got. Here's what I get. 
European centers of re reference networks are like that. We have a, under RDI, we have a concept of creating with the WHO now, giving it uh, hopefully still its blessing to create what we call a, gl a global collaborative, a collaborative global network for rare diseases. And that is creating a global community of rare disease centers of excellence and being able to network them so that they can actually serve as resources with the goal that no matter where you are in Brazil, you know, if you're far away from any major center, that you can get access to somebody who can then get access to the right specialist. I mean, that's a big goal. It's a 10-year goal. It could be a 20-year goal. But that, to me, would be the way in which we can, you know, get to, to where um, we're going to be able to empower that family and that physician who's sitting there, you know, on the front lines to be able to get access to the right kinds of specialists in order to make that happen. And also then, as you're saying, Dong, where does the care and support come from? It comes from an international community that hopefully, again, with a great deal of technology that people can tap into. It's a vision. Um, it's a long ways out. Um, it's going to take a lot of resourcing and not just from each country's own uh, public system, but it's going to take a lot of private support as well. But that's the goal. I, I agree with everything you said, but I want to play the devil's advocate here a little bit mm -hmm. because I really don't think we should overburden the primary care system because it's like for rare disease diagnosis, it requires lots of specialties and lots of trainings in multidisciplinary areas. Lots of rare disease, they just not just belong to one particular discipline. It needs doctors and specialists from different areas. They can work together and coordinate, then give a diagnosis, right? So like for primary care system, for the GPs and family medicine, they do not, and we should not ask them to have this kind of training in multidisciplinary areas. Mm. That's not fair for them because their job is to take care of the general public, all of us on all these common diseases. How can you ask them to spend like years of years of training, feeling like they're failing themselves of not being able to diagnose? Oh, the it's the opposite of what I was saying, Dong, and that is they do not do the years and years of training. They do enough to understand that we may have a rare disease, and here's where that rare disease might be. And if I can give you easier access to the information that says, okay, now I need to refer you over to here, and maybe to say refer you to multiple centers. So the goal is to take the burden off of the front line. I agree with you totally. It is not up to them to try to do that diagnosis. I think that was one of your earlier questions, Sean. What can we do you know, to get a family physician to do a better job of diagnosing? And my answer is they shouldn't be. They should not be burdened with the diagnosis, but they should be able to know and to have places where they can refer the patients to the same as they don't do a deep diagnosis of cancer, right? We don't expect them to do that. You know, we expect them to be able to refer it over. So that's what we don't have is where the heck am I going to refer these patients to? Yeah, I want to add on to that because based on China's experience, that the re one of the reasons why Chinese patients can get diagnosis very efficiently because of the, this uneven distribution of healthcare resources. It's amazing when you think about the even uneven distribution of healthcare resources, you may think this is a barrier for people to get diagnosis. But actually, it's not because whenever they cannot get a diagnosis at the local level, like from the community hospital, they just jump, fly to Beijing or Shanghai, those big cities with the best hospitals in the country, then bomb, they get a diagnosis very immediately. So that is why the whole diagnostic journey is so shortened just because of this uneven distribution of medical resources. It sounds ridiculous, 
But in a sense, it also tells us that we should not totally rely on the primary care system. We should let people understand the diagnosis of rare disease is not just one person's responsibility. It requires lots of support from other medical, the, the entire medical community. So that is why in China, they are trying to do teleconferences and teletraining, like courses, centering on these big hospitals like Peking Union College Hospitals in Beijing, one of the best hospitals. And they train the doctors at the local level in the community hospitals, try to let them have a common sense of what rare disease is. Then they establish this network. So whenever those doctors at the primary care system, they see something peculiar, something strange, they will refer them immediately to those doctors who have this capacity, who has this ability to give a correct diagnosis. I truly believe this is a more efficient way. And this is one of the best way for the patients to get a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I wanted to. I wanted to come to you, Helen. I see you're, you're ready to to give an answer. I, I'm very interested yeah. to hear your thoughts on the position in in South Africa. So I think ultimately it comes down to education and advocacy at all levels, um, whether it be you know the GP or the um, the MO in the hospital. And you've got to remember in South Africa at the primary healthcare setting, a lot of the time you're seeing nurses. So you've got to build up. Um, the genetics components um, of nursing college and, and the curricula and so on, but just really um, build up the capacity there and the expertise so that the first line of those nurses that they can also know when they need to refer to a doctor and then up through the referral network that we have here in South Africa. And I think knowing when to refer is, is so crucial and so key. And I think it, it, it's very interesting listening to um, colleagues from around the world because obviously everyone, every country is in a unique situation, but, um, and I've, I guess I've painted, you know, rather a negative picture in some respects for South Africa, but there's so much happening here because advocacy is ongoing at so many levels and education at so many levels. For example, we are now developing a rare disease strategy for the country, which is really exciting. And we're involving all the different stakeholders in to get their, you know, two pence worth in, into it or 10 cents worth into it. Um, and then just to have that recognized by um, government. We're presenting at one of the portfolio committees next week on our input into the National Health Initiative here in South Africa, which is a, essentially a funding mechanism for universal health care here in South Africa. Of course, it's been blown out of the water by the required COVID response. Um, and so all the funding has been reallocated to COVID. But nevertheless, we've got an NHI um, and universal health care approach there that is gradually being implemented. And yes, there's resistance. Yes, it's slow, but it's there. Um, and we've been able to comment on that and feed into that process, which is where we're headed next week to um, government. And then we also have um, a human genetics policy that's being revised here in South Africa. And as you may know, um, originating from South Africa, we have some great policies and some great laws, but it's implementation um, is where we're falling short. And it does come down to resources. So that brings me back again to advocacy, education, awareness at all levels, whether it's talking amongst patients, patient support groups, clinicians, nurses, government, policymakers, researchers, whoever. There's a need in all of those levels and every sphere for improved education and advocacy. Right. Thank you, Helen. So, yeah, I, I, some of the, the points that I'm taking away from this discussion, which has been fantastic, is that the, the equity is, is a real issue. 
cultural sensitivity is an issue. And I think this, this uh, something that, that both you, Helen, and Dong also touched on is this, this hidden population, which I think is really critical. And it's not something we've talked about in previous webinars, but I think accessing, finding that population, uh, getting to them, diagnosing, detecting rare diseases, and mm -hmm. then being able to treat them is, is really critical. So with that in mind, uh, for the last few minutes, I, I wanted to talk about what needs to change in the next decade or two? And, and you know, Derhan, you said this might, this is, this is a marathon, it's not a sprint. It's gonna take a long time to change things. So, so what do we need to move things forward? Um, so maybe I could, I could just have each of you, you know, sort of touch on some of the things that you think are most important in the, the last few minutes that we, we have left and we can discuss some of those. So um, Helen, why don't we, we start with your thoughts? <laughs> Um, I think from my perspective, um, for South Africa, it's evidence. We need evidence. Our health system is evidence-based, and it will only be taken notice of if we have the data, if we have the published research, if we have that expert knowledge from rare disease patients themselves, from the communities. Um, and I think as a collective, it will become a cacophony um, that the, you know, the government will have to have to listen to and will hopefully make an impact in the same way that HIV activists actually got HIV on the agenda here in South Africa. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Um, Amy, maybe we can have you give us your thoughts next. Yeah, so again, I think education is very important um, for not only the medical care providers, but also for the general population. We have many times families coming to us already with a diagnosis because they found it on, on their search in Google. Um, <laughs> But also, I think a better policy is to have uh, rules, very clear rules of, of you know, uh, data and how to share that data um, from laboratories uh, that they find this variance of uncertain significance that we have in, in genetic testing. Um, they are not mandated to share this information. Um, and you know we should have by now a better system uh, where we can share all the information worldwide. Um, and there are little steps that you know the American uh, Academy uh, of, of Genetics is trying to to do. Um, but we are way behind um, based on the technology that is available. So um, we need to catch up on all the information that. It's already there. We just need to like digest. But the only way for I think um, to go forward is to to share it internationally with everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Durhan, how about uh, you go next? Yeah, so I'll pick up on two things. Uh, one is um, what Helen said as well. We need the evidence. I think we need the evidence, and we need the economic evidence. Uh, we have a colleague of mine, Samuel Wave, who runs a rare disease initiative Ghana. Whom you may know, Helen. I mean, we, the question I asked him was, how did you get the governments to pay attention, to begin to introduce newborn screening, to actually have training? And how do you get your colleagues on board to actually treat rare diseases? This is collecting the evidence, collecting the data. And some of it was very simple to show how many patients were ending up in hospital with rare diseases that were not diagnosed who could have avoided the hospital if we had diagnosed them. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, collecting that evidence. And it doesn't have to be big, high power. But and then what does it cost then? And what would have been the benefit? So I think we need to do a good job of being able to collect the evidence and turn it into economic data. The second thing, though, I will say is I think we need global 
you know, we need to work together as a global community. Rare Disease International is introducing a resolution at the United Nations. It's a resolution to recognize rare diseases because it's not just a healthcare issue. It is a social issue. It's an equity issue. It's an educational issue. It's a women's issue and it has huge impact. And the United Nations, you know, included rare diseases in universal health coverage a couple of years ago. We fought very hard for that. And it really was part of what we felt was an important message and there is leave no one behind. Just because you have a disease that is actually representative of a very small number in that disease itself, it doesn't mean you should be ignored. You have every bit as much right to get access to healthcare and to be treated and supported family-wise, et cetera, as anybody else. But secondly, working together, there are lots of common solutions for rare diseases. It's not like I have to take each and every one of these 6,000 diseases and come up with a unique pathway for diagnosis and treatment, right? We know that's not the case. You know, having, you know, so 80% of them are genetic. There are lots of things that can be done in common. And that's kind of where, why we're all in this. So recognizing the same as with cancers. If we actually think about them collectively, six or 7,000, we have many commonalities in that strategy. And many of those strategies will actually work across the globe. And they will also work though only if I think we take global action. So I'm very excited about the opportunities of something like this, you know, what you brought together and to hear kind of where other countries are and other specialists are and being able to continue to forge that global alliance and looking for solutions. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wonderful. And Dong, let's uh, we'll come to you last. Okay, so I, I, I totally agree with what Helen and Durham and AB were saying. And I want to add to that. Um, when I was thinking about this question, this is actually the last question you left to us. So when I was thinking about that question, I was thinking about several keywords. The first word is trans. We need to have this trans-bordering, transdisciplinary, transracial, even trans-global collaborations. That's what Durham was emphasizing. But we also need to break down the walls, right? There are lots of walls built up in the past few years at different levels. So we definitely need to tear those walls down and trying to get connected. We need to share, share information, share our knowledge, but also share our life stories, share our experience, the tears and laughs among the community. We need to have belief in this patient's community. I believe, and as I have seen in the last several years, how creative they can be, how strategic they can be, how vibrant they can be. They can find out different ways to empower themselves and to enlighten others. And the last thing I want to share with you is that a few years ago, I was reading a doctor's notes about rare disease. He was proposing that we should not say the disease is rare or not. Because when we're trying to label rare diseases as rare, no doctors will think that they are going to encounter any of this disease in their lifetime because they are rare. So we should not emphasize on this concept anymore. We should let people know that no disease is rare. Every disease can be common and you are, and you will encounter these rare cases in your life. So get prepared. Everybody need to think about no, like there is no such thing as rare in our life. So in that way, we can help people to better understand all these diseases, all these difficulties that the human being, the human society is facing right now, so that we can work together trying to deal with it. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, fantastic. Dong, I think there was a, a fantastic way to wrap things up and to end this discussion. Unfortunately, we have reached the end of the hour. So 
we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much to our panel. It really was a fantastic discussion. Uh, I appreciate you generously sharing your time and expertise. Um, a reminder that this series on rare diseases continues throughout 2021. So um, to our audience, please look out for future events at webinar.sciencemag.org. Uh, thank you once again to the panel um, and to Foundation Ibsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>